Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. This is episode 115 of my podcast for March 10th, 2011. My guest today is Eric Reese, entrepreneur and author of the upcoming book, The Lean Startup. Now, today we talk about how Eric got introduced to Lean, to core materials such as books by Womack and Jones and Jeff Liker, and how he has put a lot of thought into how to take proven lean principles, um, such as reduced batch sizes, five whys analysis, faster time to market and customer focus, and applied them to startups. And we both agree that there are a lot of applications of these lean startup principles, even if you, the listener, are working on new products in larger, older manufacturing settings. So I hope you'll take 20 minutes to listen regardless of your background, as Eric's work has certainly stretched my attempts at lean thinking in new and better directions. You can find the webpage for this post at leanblog.org slash 115, which will have links uh, to Eric's sites and other posts uh, about him and his work. So as always, thanks for listening. Eric, it's really nice of you to take time out of your busy schedule to talk on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I was wondering if you can introduce uh, yourself briefly for the audience and also talk a little bit about how, you know, as a software developer, you got exposed to lean or ideas that, you know, you eventually discovered seems very much like lean. Yeah. Well, my background is as a computer programmer. You know, I'm one of those kids that grew up programming computers and was pretty surprised, pleasantly so, when I found out you could get paid to do that as a career. I just thought of it as, you know, something you did, did for fun in the basement. And, you know, I always had the experience as a programmer, just maybe it's just my bad luck or who knows, working on projects that either never saw the light of day or that basically failed in the marketplace. Mm. So I have worked on a lot of different really cool pieces of technology that have no customers today. And as a, as a programmer, I naturally was always looking for technical solutions to that problem. I always assumed that, you know, if I just use the right programming methodology, if we just use the right platforms and APIs and uh, the right open source technology, I was a big believer in open source, user generated content, that those things would all solve that problem. And, and they didn't. And it was pretty frustrating because, you know, as a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you know, as I started to do more things that were more entrepreneurial, I would always see these stories in magazines and, and see the movies. And there's some great movies out now, you know, where the crazy cool programmer, you know, works on something really cool. And then kind of dot, 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 then they're on the cover of magazines and they make a lot of money. And I kept doing all the same things that the person in the movie does and then not having that outcome mm. and being, you know, a little bit, frankly, uh, uh, frustrated about that. And so I started to uh, move away from purely technical solutions and I started to really think about how could we uh, increase the odds the stuff that we're building actually matters to customers. And I didn't get exposed to lean thinking directly until relatively late in my career, but I had been exposed to something called agile programming, which is basically an application of lean principles to uh, the the methodology of developing software. So much you know, much lower batch size, much faster cycle time uh, than was you know traditional in what they call waterfall style uh, uh, programming. And the irony, of course, is that waterfall was taught to me as a computer engineer in Silicon Valley. It was taught to me as the manufacturing metaphor of software development, uh, but it's like completely linear assembly line, you know, straight out of the Henry Ford playbook. 
So you can imagine how pissed off I was when I eventually discovered that they don't use it in manufacturing anymore. So it wasn't clear to me why it made a good metaphor for software development. But the challenge of software development is that it's completely intangible. You cannot, you can't see the product as it's being built. It's all, you know, intangible lines of code, you know, the ghost in the machine. And so people felt like a very, like, rigid, planning-oriented methodology made sense to try to make the progress more tangible. And that just, I, that had never worked for me. So I was kind of open to new ideas. And, and also, Agile didn't really work for me either. So at the startups where I was trying to apply Agile, we would wind up building more efficiently by driving down batch size of work, by making things more like what the customer wanted. But of course, we didn't actually have any customers. We were a startup. So we would wind up using internal customers or kind of the, the internal project visionary as the person who set out the spec. And we would wind up building that which is specified more efficiently. But then that didn't actually work very well because then it would turn out that the person we thought was our customer wasn't and the visionary was wrong. And we were kind of right back where we started. I was going to just finish the story by saying that we started to develop new techniques for um, how to bring the customer and our kind of theories about the customer into the product development process itself and take some of the agile paradigm and, and accelerate it even further. So, for example, driving the batch size of our work down all the way as low as we could to almost get into single piece flow but rather than with physical widgets, with the actual bits of code that we were deploying to customers. So we would deploy software to production, you know, 50 times every day using a process called continuous deployment. And those techniques didn't make sense according to all of the theories that I had been taught about what software development was, about how startups should be managed. And so it made it really difficult for me to evangelize the techniques, even to other people who I worked with, my coworkers, my bosses, our investors. Everyone would always say, why are you doing this crazy thing that doesn't make sense? And I was always struggling to say, no, the thing that you're doing doesn't make sense. Look at the terrible failure rates in our industry and look how much better results we're getting here. But, you know, when the dominant paradigm is being challenged, that is hard. And so I was on a crazy reading spree, just trying to learn as much as I could, searching for models to just make sense of my own experience and help me explain it. And when I read Lean Thinking, uh, it was like a light bulb went on for me. It was such a dramatic uh, experience because I said, oh, we're just using the wrong manufacturing metaphor for our work. And if we use one that's better, actually, it, it works quite well. And, of course, what we're doing is still different from traditional lean manufacturing because we still have this big unknown about the customer. But with a few tweaks, it seemed like we could take ideas that had been well-proven in other industries and bring them into the entrepreneurship industry. And that was the origin of Lean Startup. Yeah, and I, I like how you draw those connections and parallels. You know, if you look at Toyota's approach, it's often described as a customer in philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the Toyota product development system for vehicles, you know, the lessons around, you know, not just building a truck and then trying to push it on customers. You need to understand right. their needs and also understand, you know, the pricing and make sure you engineer the vehicle to hit a certain price yes. point as opposed to just saying, well, here's our cost and we're going to mark it up and dang That's you right. Buy That's it. right. Right. Now, uh -huh. before we talk about, I'd like you to you know, define lean startup methodology, but maybe one other point uh, I'd like you to make, because I think we have a lot of listeners from here who don't listen, who don't work at startups, and I hope they continue <laughs> listening anyway, because your definition of um, a, a entrepreneur, I think, is applicable as well to people who maybe work in, in big, large companies. Would you agree? Oh, sure. Yes, Absolutely. In fact, one of the biggest surprises once I started being asked to speak in public about Lean Startup is I used to um, 
you know, part of my work was to try to bring the practice of entrepreneurship onto a more rigorous footing. So, you know, I'm a very logical, deductive style thinker. So it was important to me to have good definitions of terms and really understand what is entrepreneurship, who is an entrepreneur, so that I'm not just basing my life's work on what I saw in the movies, which I just thought was not, not a very effective model. Yeah. And so I had this definition, uh, a startup is a human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And it was from that basic definition that I had proceeded to define a lean theory of entrepreneurship. And one of the funny things about that definition is it doesn't say anything about industry, sector of the economy, or company size. It just says you're trying to create something new, build an organization to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And so at my very first talks, I would say, and by the way, this is completely applicable to entrepreneurs inside big companies. And at that time, I was just speculating. You know, I felt a little bit like a scientific theorist making a prediction about the physical world without knowing whether it was going to be true or not. It just said, the theory predicts that these people should exist. So if any one of you are in the audience, please come talk to me. And from that very first talk, I remember it really clearly. There were, there were people like that in the audience and they came up to me afterwards and they were actually the most vehement of the people who wanted to really ask me, well, how specifically do I do this? How can we, you know, convince people in my organization to adopt it? Because most of the kind of theories of disruptive innovation, most of the frameworks that they were using to create new products inside their own companies treated the innovation like a black box and just said, you know, you get the right kind of people and you give them the right budget and you kind of do the organizational structure around them properly. And then magic happens. And that's basically what we used to believe about entrepreneurship too, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And what these guys would say is they're like, listen, I'm the manager of this team. We're in the black box. And they, they said it to me like, I've got the fire, I got the, uh, the firewood and the kindling and my matches and the paper and all the ingredients right here. Where's my fire? And when the fire doesn't appear, they're like, what specifically am I supposed to tell my people to do? And I, you know, felt like, well, okay. Um, that's actually the exact same problem we see with venture backed entrepreneurs. Who get, you know, managed to raise a check for $5 million and then they're like, now what? Mm-hmm. What specifically am I supposed to do every day? How can I tell if I'm making progress? And so, yeah, what has happened is this thing has grown into a movement is we have pulled in entrepreneurs from all kinds of different industries mm-hmm. and sizes of company. And I think that's actually one of the most exciting things about it. And I, I like the way, I think it's insightful the way you help emphasize the idea of that uncertainty being both technical risk and market risk. So can you mm-hmm. maybe talk about the two of those and, and dovetail that into what a lean startup is and, and how it applies to situations like that? Yeah. We live in a world of increasing uncertainty just in general. And, and yet our capabilities are also, you know, at their all time high. So, and, and this is, I mean, lean manufacturing is a huge part of the reason why we find ourselves in this situation. We literally have more productive capacity than we know what to do with. So the dominant question of our time is really not, can it be built, but should it be built? We really live in a time when any product, you know, know, with the exceptions of ones that are based on true fundamental scientific breakthroughs, but the vast majority of products, um, they, they absolutely could be built, you know, given sufficient time and resources. And the question really is, is there a market for those products? Is there a way to build a sustainable organization around a set of products and services? And so if you think of the world in a kind of a two-by-two matrix, on one axis, we ask, how much market uncertainty is there compared to technical uncertainty? So in some products, the dominant questions are, can it be built? Market uncertainty means, you know, can we build a business around it? Uh, you could kind of put industries on that map and you say, okay, well, 
you know, for the classic, you know, new automobile introduction, we can say for sure that if we can hit a certain price point and get certain performance characteristics, customers will want it. Whereas in other businesses, we face a lot more disruptive innovation. We have a lot more questions like, you know, if I build this new software product, you know, will customers want it? Uh, if I can actually help people, you know, manage their advertising inventory and their enterprise more effectively, will they actually be willing to pay for it? All those kinds of questions. That's one axis. And on the other axis, we have the question of what's the underlying cycle time of that business. So again, you know, automobile manufacturing situation, maybe we'll bring a new model, you know, a, a minor introduction, a minor change of a model once a year in the new model year. And every four or five years, we bring a new major model to market. But, but in worlds like software, a year is an eternity. And so we can actually change the version of the product quite rapidly. And in fact, you know, when we practice continuous deployment, we can do it multiple times every day. So again, you can align industries along that axis too. And in that upper right-hand quadrant where you have very fast cycle time and lots of market uncertainty, that's the place where Lean Startup really excels, where we try to use our advantage in cycle time to help us reduce that uncertainty as quickly as possible in order to understand where to invest. But there's a caveat. If you think about, because the people usually hear this talk and they say, okay, that sounds great. The Lean Startup sounds like a great idea for those other industries that are in that quadrant. But of course, my industry, we don't have to worry about this. You ask yourself, in what direction is the world moving right now on both axes? My contention is it's only moving in one direction and it's the same. Every industry is being pushed inexorably towards more market risk as everything gets cheaper and it gets easier to start new companies. It gets easier to introduce new products and to distribute them. We all face much more competition, both globally and domestically. And there's consumers are faced with much, uh, many more choices about what to do as technology changes faster. The capabilities of primitive tools become more complex. And so the level of uncertainty is increasing across all industries. And the same forces are also driving down cycle time across industries. Interestingly to me, one of the forces is lean manufacturing because you know we have been uh, systematically applying a cycle time reduction strategy to the way that we work uh, so that we can uh, bring new models to market quicker. We can uh, adapt demand to what customers really want. But that same capability can be used not just for greater efficiency, but also for exploring new product concepts, which I think is one of the capabilities that then we introduce into Lean Startup. So when I've heard you talk about you know your, your past experiences, um, talking about cycle time and, and speed, and I appreciate in general how you emphasize lean is not about being cheap, but it's about being yes. fast and iterative. But um, when I heard you talk before, there were also a lot of aspects of what I would describe as lean culture, um, respect for people, not blaming people um, for yes. errors. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the cultural aspects of what you would consider a lean startup to be? Mm -hmm. I found uh, Dr. Liker's approach in the Toyota way really helped Full in terms of framing the kind of you know pyramid of uh, of topics and the way he kind of shows how process is the foundation for uh, creating a lean culture, which is really about fundamentally empowering people. And I think the same thing is true here. Um, most of the people who try to create new entrepreneurial cultures do so without having changed the process first. And what you know, as human beings, we always misunderstand. We always think when someone's behaving badly or being uncreative or doing something we don't like, we assume it's because of their personality or, you know, that somehow they're a bad person or an uncreative person. But, you know, as we've all learned, uh, those who have studied how work systems operate, 
most people's behavior is determined by the system and incentives that they are embedded in. And so part of the work of Lean Startup is to try and change the process by which the companies are built, change their daily work process so that when we're working in smaller batches, we're working more cross-functionally, uh, we get faster feedback from customers, we actually have the opportunity to unleash people's creativity in a new way. And I think that's the most exciting possibility that this revolution is, is is kind of bringing to attention, that most of the new products that are being built worldwide are a complete waste of time. And as a society, we are squandering our most precious resources, which is the time and energy and creativity of our most talented people. So to me, this is about uh, allowing those people to be more productive but not like just in a very narrow, efficient sense of doing their individual function really well, but making the, the products that they work on actually matter. Yeah, doing work that gives you life meaning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nothing more satisfying than being an entrepreneur. It's scary and risky and, you know, has all kinds of ups and downs, but so does life. It's a very human enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so the worst is when you have that experience of having really devoted years of your life to something and having believed in it so passionately because you are wrapped up in what we call Silicon Valley, we call it the reality distortion field. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability of a team or a company to really convince everybody that the thing is definitely absolutely positively going to succeed. If you've ever had that experience, when you finally realize it's going to fail, you realize that you've been lied to, you've been deceived, you've been tricked. And that's the worst, you know, that's the worst kind of, of failure to have. And that breeds a lot of cynicism and bitterness in, you know, in our modern workforce that can be removed. It can be fixed. Yeah. Now, one of the, the, the well, the word or uh, maybe runs the risk of being a misunderstood buzzword, this idea of the pivot. So uh, I've heard you talk before. Uh, it's been really interesting how you've described, you know, the, the, the nerve that it takes to go start a company, yeah. um, you know, the, the risk that you have to take isn't always combined with that willingness to listen to the market. So, you know, that stubbornness yes, yes. that helps you get started can also be your downfall. So can, you know, can you describe the pivot? And then maybe in context of that, we did have a question come in via Twitter from Joe Dager um, at Business 901. How is a pivot different than just following the plan, do, check, act cycle where you react and adjust accordingly? Yeah. So Lean Startup has a, a complementary theory to PDCA. We, we call it build, measure, learn. Uh, basically, uh, the fundamental feedback loop that we're working in, uh, we translate ideas into products by building. We have the customers interact with those products to generate data, and that data informs our next set of ideas. So build, measure, learn. Our heuristic, just as in um, you know, any lean context, is to uh, minimize total time to the feedback loop rather than becoming really efficient in any one of the three activities. But we reserve the term pivot to mean that one of our core business hypotheses has been invalidated and it's time to make a change. So lean startups will constantly optimize their product, constantly make change in response to customer feedback, to little, uh, to, you know, split tests about, you know, is one way of presenting the product better than another? New marketing messages, new features, new designs, all that, all the kind of functional improvements to a product. But, Entrepreneurs have this very special thing, we call it the pivot, which is that sometimes your optimization techniques start to, to kind of yield diminishing returns, where you're, you are succeeding in making the product better, but you're not really getting any closer to having a sustainable business. And this is a kind of thing that really doesn't have a um, regular old kind of lean thinking analog, because in general, once you start to manufacture a product 
uh, and start to drive out the waste in your manufacturing process, you tend to get incremental benefit for incremental investment. Not, you know, 100%, not every investment pays off the same amount, but because you really can understand, you have a way of forecasting demand at least a little bit, you pretty much know, like, if you can improve the cost, your cost targets, you know what you're going to get. But entrepreneurs often find themselves in a situation where we are actually improving our work, but customers don't care because we're helping them do something that they don't care about. So we're making a bad product easier to use is the most common case. So we've, we've figured out an easier way for people to discover what the product's all about and get registered and get involved. Maybe even we've made it easier for them to pay. But fundamentally, the value propositions offered by our product is not one that any customers want. So by making the product easier to use, we're actually helping them more quickly discover that they want to bail out and not be our customers anymore. So that's a situation where we have to make a, a significant change to our business strategy. And we might make a change uh, like a customer segment pivot when we realize, oh, we thought we were selling to one kind of consumer, but actually there's another kind who would like our product better. Uh, we might have to change from being an application to being a platform or vice versa. We might have to change our engine of growth. So we might move from being a viral product that spreads by word of mouth to being one that is supported by paid advertising. And in each of these cases, what's happening is once we change strategy, then there's going to be a whole cascade of changes that are going to happen as a result. Like we might wind up having to throw out significant chunks of our product. Uh, we might wind up switching from a product to a service or vice versa. Um, we might have to really change the way we market the product or even where the company is located. So there's all these kind of secondary changes that come out of a fundamental change in strategy. So it's not something you want to take undertake lightly, and it's not something you do all the time. But it is necessary because if you look at the history of startup success – You'll notice this pattern that uh, the majority of the time, successful entrepreneurs started with a really bad idea. And so if we you know, are stubborn and persevere and just do that bad idea efficiently, uh, then we're just persevering the plane straight into the ground. Okay. Well, um, we're running short on time, unfortunately. I do want to ask you um, in, the, in the category of things that typically don't iterate very quickly, traditional publishing, um, you're, you're writing a book. <laughs> totally. Yes. Uh, I'm pre-ordered uh, a copy. So, okay, come on. When, when's it coming out? <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> tell, I tell, wish. Tell the listeners about how, uh, how that's coming, what the book is called. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, I, I wish cycle times in the publishing industry were faster, uh, alas. Um, the book will be called The Lean Startup. It's going to be published by Crown, which is one of the big New York uh, business book publishers, and it's going to come out in the fall. We're hoping or early September. I'm really excited about it because it'll be the first chance that, that I've had to really walk through the theory of the Lean Startup and combine it with a number of really detailed case studies that are designed for a general business audience. So, you know, right now the Lean Startup is a very popular methodology with, uh, you know, venture back entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley with a lot of different tech companies and people who are kind of the early adopters for, for new ideas about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But if you think back to what I said before about how we're wasting so much of people's time, the biggest perpetrators of that waste uh, are still general managers, uh, individual sole proprietors, um, you know, private equity and investment bankers, people who uh, have a role to play in the innovation ecosystem, but don't necessarily think of themselves as entrepreneurs or don't necessarily think of themselves as needing new ideas about entrepreneurship. So the idea with this book is really to take the message to everybody in that category to say, listen, there is something new happening here and there is a better way for managing uh, entrepreneurship, which is helpful regardless of whether you yourself are an entrepreneur or whether your job is to hold entrepreneurs accountable. So, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be a complete 
you know, contemporary business book complete with, with uh, you know, not just the theory of the lean startup, but really a lot of very specific case studies of the ideas being applied in a wide variety of industries. So I'm pretty excited about it. But yeah, it does just take a long time. Yeah, it is exciting. And people can learn more lean.st. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. We, we actually built our own website where people can pre-order so that we can run experiments on you as you're pre-ordering. So please, please do. In fact, if you pre-order, uh, one of the things you will get is access to our complete experimentation system. So you can go, you can step behind the curtain and you can see all the experiments that we have run and are running and see how we're using the data to kind of evolve the marketing and kind of value proposition of the book. So I've got to eat my own dog food and feel like. <laughs> You know, I've got to practice what I preach. Yeah, well, very cool. Well, um, again, uh, Eric Reese was our guest today. I want to uh, thank you for taking time out um, to talk today about lean startups. Really interesting field. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.